I think we have the best legal system. It's just the people that implement it. They get lost along the way and forget what their job really is. He just kept on trying to remind me that who was in authority, who was in control, and how easy it was for my body to be found in any alley of New York City. It's a tough prison when you have the guards going against you because they are the biggest gang in the prison. They do that. They'll give a guy a life sentence and go home and eat spaghetti like it was nothing. And anybody that would say, well, why would you confess to something that you didn't do? My question to them will be, why wouldn't you confess when somebody's threatening to kill your life? The judge, he said, how you feel? I said, I'm okay. He said, well, today is your lucky day. You're going home. This is Wrongful Conviction. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today's guest is a larger-than-life character in every way, Anthony DePippo. Anthony DePippo went behind bars as a 19-year-old troublemaker, but insists he was never the killer they said he was. After 20 years in prison for a crime the courts now say he did not commit. A jury in Putnam County found him not guilty in the 1994 rape and murder of 12-year-old Josette Wright. This was his third trial for the same crime. The previous convictions were overturned then on Tuesday, an acquittal. The main witness against him was a former girlfriend who said she witnessed the attack, but the jury didn't buy it. What we learned at this trial 
trial is that the eyewitness wasn't credible. In the third trial, the defense was allowed to suggest that Howard Gombert is the real killer, seen with the victim shortly before her disappearance and currently in a Connecticut prison on sex assault charges. The Putnam County District Attorney, though, isn't backing down. He insists not guilty is not the same as innocent. He was freed six months ago. Anthony, welcome to the show. Uh, great to be on the show. Thank you for having me. So Anthony is a very interesting guy. I've gotten to know him well over the last several months since he's been out of prison. And when I say he's a larger-than-life character, what are you, 6'5"? Almost 6'6". Six, six. Yeah, I mean, he looks like a gentle giant. So just gregarious and funny and fun to be around. And so it really belies the incredible saga that you've lived through, how you came out with your spirit so, so strong and so positive, And it, it gives me a lot of joy just hanging around with you. So I'm glad to have you here. Well, thank you. You know, I, I try to live in, in for the moment and for the future and not in the past. I did 20 years wrongfully, falsely accused of crimes I didn't commit. And it's a privilege to be back in society. You know, a lot of people in my situation don't get to make it here. Yeah, that's true. In fact, uh, we'll get to it. The guy who was wrongfully convicted with you is not here because he's right. still locked up for the same crime, which is crazy because you've been exonerated. And let's go back to the time of the crime. I mean, you were still a kid, right? right? Which is which is, makes it extra tragic, right? Because of the fact that you lost those years. So you grew up where? In Carmel, New York. Carmel, New York, and, nice and place, pretty it's nice. It's a nice place. It's picket fences and people were just living life. It's one of the safest communities according to uh, the state to live in. So you had a relatively happy childhood growing up in Carmel and right. things are going good. Do you play sports? You know, I was involved in wrestling in school and I wasn't involved with uh, baseball or football, none of that. But, you know, I, I was doing a lot of stuff that normal kids do. And I did come to an age where, you know, I began experimenting with drugs and I, I kind of went south on everything. And that kind of led me down the path to how the police started to focus in on me as a person of interest just because of what I was doing. I mean, we weren't uh, out threatening people or robbing people or committing uh, sexual assault crimes, but, you know, we were using and selling drugs and we were dressing up and we were playing a part, you know, as the culture shows that, you know, when you're a kid, you, you kind of go a certain way, you listen to rap music, you listen to, you're easily influenced. These influences affected me and I, I left school. Sort of like a knock-around guy, but you weren't hurting right. anybody. No, I, it wasn't my goal. I didn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I, I'm going to rape somebody or I'm going to go rob somebody or I'm going to hurt somebody. But at the same time, we were youths. We were criminal thinkers. I mean, it happens. I'm not a criminal thinker today. I, I like to think of myself as a mature human being. And many of us have had our transgressions at that age. So things are going along pretty well. You're having your different issues, whatever, some of your teenage things that are going on, you got to get through like a lot of people. And then a crazy thing happens in the community, which is right. a 12-year-old girl was raped and murdered, right? right. We're talking 1994 now, Yes. Right? Um, her name was Josette Wright. Josette Wright. And this must have been big news in a community like that. It was right? huge news. It was in our newspapers. Everybody was talking about it. The entire police forces in the community got together and they were trying to solve this crime. Well, she and was, it took a long time to find her, right? 13 months. She was last seen in October of 1994 and her skeletal remains were found in November 1995. And so they find this girl in the woods. A rope is attached to her. Her hands were bound behind her back. The right leg was pulled up and the rope went around the neck in sort of a half hog-tied position. Ugh, oh. now, I don't want to be graphic, but uh, oh, the, the underwear was inside of her mouth and the bra was tied around her face. 
and she was found prone face down and she decomposed in that position. And this is where things start to get really weird, right? Because right. now you have a really, I mean, I'm getting the chills thinking about it, a really terrifying scenario, right? It's the most horrible you can imagine. Everybody's worst nightmare, a little girl, innocent, found and having been tortured and killed. And now the pressure mounts, right? The cops, they got to find out who did it, but for it a lot was, of reasons. It I mean, was, you know, re-election year for the sheriff. And so everybody wanted this case solved. So they started looking at people. And one of the people they were looking at was a guy named Howard Gombert, who had later had confessed that he committed this crime to several individuals. She was last seen getting into his red car with the Connecticut license plates. Now, the woman eyewitness that seen this identified his photo out of a photo array as if anybody number two. He was number two. I wasn't in the photo array, and I didn't drive a red car. Howard Gombert did drive a red car with Connecticut plates. So you have this girl getting in a red car 15 minutes after she walks out of her house for the last time, which is a stone's throw away from her home. Now she's not seen again. The next time they find her, she's in the woods in this condition. When I went to trial, I didn't know about this guy, Howard Gombert. My attorney had previously represented him on a rape charge. So he received the pretrial discovery material that implicated his former client, this guy, Howard Gombert. Stop there for a second, right? This is where things get right. really weird. The fact is, the attorney who was representing you had previously represented the guy who was the actual suspect. Correct. Which is totally Unethical. forbidden. I mean, and, and, unethical, yeah. not allowed, whatever you want to call it. Any lawyer knows that they can't do that. And in fact, he withheld information that he had that would have implicated his former client and ended up screwing right. in the most, and I'm using a very nice word for it, screwing you, his current client. It's so backwards and so conflicted and so right. fucked up, honestly, that people can't even imagine that this goes on, but it does. But right. let's go back to how... This started, right? Because it so, started with a guy yeah, named Gombert. Well, Gombert, so, but, but we're, we're doing the week they found her remains. So they got this eyewitness testimony that week. They also interviewed people that Howard Gombert knew that they were saying was he was trying to entice her into a babysitting job and that he was flirting with her and he was acting strange around her. So the cops are focusing on this guy Gombert. But now we're driving along to Jersey City. We go to a rape. Like I said, we were using and selling drugs. We were coming back from this rave and we get pulled over. Now, while we were in the car, present in the car was me, Dominic Neglia, who was a later informant, and Andrew Krivak, who became my co-defendant. We're in this car and we're talking just candidly about they just found this girl in the woods. So when we got arrested, Dominic Neglia told the police that we might have information on that case. So they whisked him away and they promised to treat him with some special treatment to get him off his drug charges or whatever if he would further give information upon us about what we were talking about. He was only 16, right? He was 17. We were talking about basic newspaper knowledge. We weren't talking about you know implied knowledge that we actually participated in this crime. So then what happened from there was that Dominic Negley was repeatedly pulled out of his school, pulled out of his job until he got fired. He worked at the Olive Garden until he was brought to the police station for several hours of interrogation. And this detective Costaldo, Patrick Costaldo, and this other detective, William Quick, were telling him they have to get information against me. Otherwise, he's going to go to prison for his charges. And they were paying him money and they were beating him up at the same time. He said, I don't want to do this anymore. It came to a point where he says, everything I said was a fabrication. I don't want to do this anymore. So Castaldo, who was later indicted for this similar conduct, 
hit the guy in the head with the handcuffs and spit on him and said, you ain't got no other choice. So he said, fine. He came back and said, all right, they wanted witnesses. I got your witnesses. Adam Wilson, Denise Rose, and Bill McGregor. Supposedly this crime happened in the van and they were there. So the cops took this information and went to Denise Rose and threatened her with life in prison for Denise three weeks. Denise Rose was your girlfriend, right? Yeah, we were seeing each other on and off. And at the time, shortly prior to her giving a statement, we were seeing each other. But then I broke up with her, which, you know, is not the cause of why she did this to me. But it probably contributed because some women are scorned, you know, they get a certain feeling towards something. And so she became a witness against me. Now, remember what I told you about how the body was tied up. She said... The girl was gagged, her hands were tied in the front, and the rope was tied to nothing else. What the forensic evidence is contrary to that. What the police were mistaken, because the finger bones, not to be graphic here, but the finger bones fell through the rib cage. So they were under a mistaken impression the girl's hands were tied in the front. So they spoon-fed this to Denise Rose. So Denise Rose parrots this. So she swears that the hands were tied in the front. Now, if your hands are tied in the front and you're gagged in the mouth and you're being attacked or whatever, you're going to be able to pull, you reach up to your mouth to pull the gag out and breathe. If the, if the theory of death is asphyxiation. But we were later able to find out that this guy, Howard Gombert, did this to 10 other girls with the same type of bondage and stuff. Why did the cops, in your opinion, when they had the guy who turned out to be the right guy, this Gombert, right. the wrong guy, the right guy, however you want to talk about it, they had the actual perpetrator, right? How did they go so far wrong? They were interviewing him. They were interrogating him. Right. They had it right. All they had to do was, you know, I mean, this thing pretty much came with instructions, right? You had the red car, you had the witnesses. Motor stopped you had, died. And then ultimately they, it comes out that he's this serial predator, right? I don't right. know if they had that information at that time. But why did they go off of him? Like I said, Dominic Neglia. And then from Denise Rose, it went on to Adam Wilson, who since recanted, and then Bill McGregor, who since recanted. Supposedly the crime, the theory of the crime was that we got so high in a van, we played spin the bottle, and the girl just wound up dead. That Andy attacked her, stuffed her mouth with the underwear, tied her hands in front, and then he went first for a minute and a half, and then supposedly I went first for a minute, and then supposedly we were had supposed to dump the body. Now, this is all a fabrication to begin with, but the people that were supposedly playing spin the bottle who were falsely identified by Dominic Neglia had recanted. So Adam Wilson says, after a 12, 15-hour interrogation with Dan Stevens, the same guy that coerced Jeffrey Deskovic using a lie detector test, and we all know that Jeffrey Deskovic is innocent because DNA established the real killer and the real kill confessed, gave the same type of lie detector test to my friend Adam Wilson. And he signed the paper, but immediately recanted, went to his probation officer the next day, said, the story is untrue. I was not in a van. The cops threatened me. They said I was going to be charged as an accomplice or an accessory to murder. And I wouldn't be able to go home. So he signed a statement and recanted the next day. Bill McGregor, he recanted. It took him 10 years to recant. But he recanted, gave us a sworn affidavit that cops threatened him with accessory or accomplice to murder unless he put me in a van. And he said he never met Josette Wright in his life. And he said he doesn't know who Denise Rose was until 96, two years after the crime, when the police introduced Denise Rose to him. And they had Denise Rose try to spoon feed him the story while he's in the police department. Because he only said he fell asleep during a crime and woke up at home. This is making my head hurt, right? So they have Gombert, right? And then this terrible sequence of events happens where they pull you guys over. Right. And then that turns into exactly what we just talked about. But then at the same time, they must have said, all right, well, we're going to let this guy Gombert go because we think we got a different lead. Is that basically how you understand it? Because it's so weird. That right, they so had you asked the a critical question. 
how did the focus shift off Gombert to us? So Dominic Naglia, in my view, was that shift. Is there anything more to it? Were they protecting Gombert? I don't know. All I know is that guilt was shift to the actually innocent by the police who either did so maliciously or by mistake. But it was done. And we wound up spending the next 20 years, and Andy's still in jail, for crimes we didn't commit. I don't know why the cops wanted us so badly, but it just happened. It was a 20-year struggle to get out of prison, and God bless us. I'm here, and we're going to get Andy out. Yeah, we're going to get him out. The question is, Gombert, what happened to him? So can I just tell the story about Howard Gombert so people can understand? All right, Howard Gombert is incarcerated now for taking an eight-year-old girl in the woods, threatening her with death. I'm not going to name names because these people are, some of them are still living. He threatens her with death. He sexually assaults her. In the last 11 years of his freedom, he was charged four times serious sex crimes. Uh, One girl he was abusing from when she was eight to 18 would repeatedly tie her up and put the underwear in her mouth and tie her hands behind her back with various things, including the rope. He was 64 days prior to the girl that went missing in my case, Josette Wright. And this is very critical right here. And this is how I know Gomber's guilty, is that he abducted his other babysitter, blonde hair, blue eyes, strikingly similar characteristics at knife point. A knife was also found at the crime scene. He jumps out of the trees and abducts her at knife point, ties her hands behind her back, and repeatedly sexually assaults her. I'm not going to identify no names here. This... But he put the underwear in her mouth. He tied something around her face. This is an identical modus operandi with a babysitter. And he was enticing Joseph to babysit. She quit. She went to the police department, filed a police report that night, documented all this down, documented this. She didn't identify Howard Gombert in the police report because later she said she was scared. But she did call us. We didn't know who she existed. She did call us and said, this is what happened. Howard Gombert did this to me. So she comes forward with this information. The modus operandi is distinct and unique. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't somebody who paraded the girl around a gas station for two hours, like the prosecution said, for the entire views and pleasure of, of the town of Carmel. This is somebody that jumped out of the darkness and fled back off into the night. Now, I just want to build a little bit more on Howard Gombert. Howard Gombert was also seen six months later with Robin Murphy, 17, who's still missing. And Robin Murphy, they were seen at this laundromat. They were together. Years later, they would find Robin Murphy's underwear bearing her DNA, 8 billion to 1 odds that it was her DNA, in a trophy suitcase maintained by Howard Gombert with some underwear from his other rape victims. Her necklace, what we believe to be her necklace, was hanging from his rearview mirror. And when the cops arrested him for the last charge, the 8-year-old, they found this material and they tested it. Now, years go by after that. He's incarcerated serving time in the McDougal Walker Correctional Facility, where he proceeds to tell a fellow jail inmate that he had sex with Josette Wright when she went missing and that they'll never find Robin Murphy's remains and that they have material with Robin Murphy's DNA on it and that he was trying to entice Josette to babysit and that he got her in the car with the babysitting lure. Now, all these statements are declarations against penal interest made by Howard Gombert in a Connecticut correctional institution that are corroborated by proof independent of the statements themselves, to attest to the trustworthiness and reliability, which culminated in my third reversal. Because of the second trial, the judge didn't allow any of this in. You didn't let the jury hear the name Howard Gombert. So there's a number of things here that anybody who has any shred of decency and cares about women, the girls in this case, right? The idea is so 
fucking outrageous that this guy was allowed by the authorities to go free and went on to commit these unspeakable crimes against these young women over and over again. And it took them so long to figure it out when none of those things ever really needed to happen. If they would have done it right the first time, forgetting for a moment the fact that you were robbed of the best years of your life, as was Krivak, but that's what never ceases to blow me away about the idea that these law enforcement people, whether it's prosecutors or cops in some cases or whatever it is, that they can sleep at night knowing that they're locking up the wrong guy. And especially in a case like this, and it's just a tragedy that you sit here and go, it could have been prevented. It didn't have to happen. None of this had to happen. They had the guy. I mean, it wasn't like a big mystery. They had the guys. I mean, I know you must have had, well, you had 20 years to think about this, but I mean, you know, it, it's just, it's so, uh, I, I can't, um, I, I can't process you know, it. You know, I, I look at it like this, right? I'm home now. I was victimized by not only the police department, but this guy, Howard Gombert. I had served his prison time. Andy is serving his prison time. Collectively, it's 41 years in prison that we're doing for this guy, this heinous individual. Some of these girls that he did this to were my friends. I don't know everybody that he did this to, but some of them were my friends. Wow. So we knew these girls growing up, and to find out years later that this is what he did. Even Josette, I was friends with the sisters. I was friends with the family. Oh I'm at God. odds with the family because they were misled for so many years. I have such sympathy for them, but I, you know, I feel horrible that they feel a certain sort of way. But you know, in certain cases, you know that some families don't accept it as easily as others, and some people want to know, and some people don't. Well, because let's think about it too. Psychologically speaking, it's another terrible shock to them to find out that the person that they thought was the real perpetrator actually wasn't and that all these years the real guy had been allowed to roam the streets and to prey on other people so that's got to be another thing to have already gone through this unbelievably terrifying traumatic experience and then have to process that i could see where there there could just be a breakdown and they could they, right. but it's hard for them to I mean, I, look, I can see, I can understand it intellectually. I can never understand. No one that's ever not been through it could possibly really understand it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids how about instead of timeouts time ins time for you to start paying some bills i'm jb smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast straightforward 
Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Everything went wrong in your case. Typical of many wrongful convictions, you had an incompetent defense attorney. You had incentivized witnesses who lied on the stand, incentivized in a lot of ways, right? right. Because they were being literally given the carrot and the stick. They were either being paid off or beaten up or, or threatened, threatened with being charged with murder. That's a pretty strong incentive, right? So you got convicted in a separate trial from Krivak, right? You both got convicted. Right. Krivak signed a nine-page false confession after he was given a lie detector test by the same individual. Daniel Stevens that gave Jeffrey Destvik his lightest detector test preceding his false confession, which later was proven false because DNA proved established. And and let me just say for the audience, in in case some people haven't heard Jeffrey's story on wrongful conviction, Jeffrey's a guy who was wrongfully convicted at 16 years old of raping and murdering a 15-year-old girl. And the DNA proved from the outset that he hadn't done it. And then on the back end, when he was finally released 16 years later, a DNA actually identified the real killer who confessed. And we know that the, the guy that you're referring to now is the detective that took his false confession, uh, gave him several cups of coffee, had him under the table in a fetal position prior to giving his statement, gave my co-defendant, Andrew Krivak, a lie detector test preceding his false confession. The ironic thing about a lie detector test is that the detective is allowed to lie about the lie detector test. Right. Right? We should be giving the fucking lie detector test to the, the detective. detective. I mean, it's it's funny, but it's not. It's so weird to think that that they can lie in the process of trying to get you to confess to a crime. They can lie. Right. They can say anything they want. They could say, we got your fingerprints. They could say, we have witnesses. They could say, we got blood or DNA or this, right. or you lied or the lie detector says you failed. They can say whatever you want. And we know that in certain cases, they've even been able, especially with a teenager, which you were, which Jeffrey was, they've been able in certain cases to convince people that they actually did do the crime that they didn't do. Right. And so false confessions are really common in these cases. It's it's problematic, though. I mean, 25% of those cases that have been established DNA proof actually innocent involve some sort of confession. One out of every four people that goes in a police department that says they did it, we have to assume they didn't do it. We have to look at it closer because... With that kind of statistics, that's demonstrating a tremendous flaw in the criminal justice system. So there has to be some sort of way to corroborate these things. These things should be taped from the beginning to the end, not before the guy starts confessing, but from the minute they bring in a suspect into a police department for an interrogation, they should turn on a camera, they should put a tape recorder there, and if he's going to say anything... Everything that he says, let be recorded. His denials, his omissions, everything. Let's just not start the tape recorder when he starts confessing and then shut it off when you got him to sign a paper. Right. It's not okay to have this movie be edited by the detectives who are conducted, which is basically what happens, right? They get to choose and selectively show 
the parts that they want to build their case. By the way, the good news is that this week, New York State passed the law that we've been fighting for, so that the Innocence Project and other organizations have been fighting for for so many years, where now videotaping of interrogations is right. now mandatory. And I think that we have to pay respect to you and others who have gone through this, because without you being out there, as you have done on many occasions, telling your story, that probably wouldn't have gone through. Because the human story is right. what really, I think, in many cases, gets the legislators to understand that these are changes that need to be made because these are things that happen to real people, right? Real people like you. I want to get to the prison experience because it's so hard to even imagine what it would have been like for you as a teenager to be thrown into the situation where you're going to a maximum security prison as a convicted rapist and murderer of a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, you're a big strong, tough guy, but still you're in a place that's, they eat people alive in there, especially people who are convicted of these type of crimes. How did you deal with this? I mean, how could anybody deal with that? How are you, how are you here? Like how well, does, I mean, it's amazing. Survival is, is man's number one instinct. I got to prison. I ain't gonna lie. I was scared of death. I didn't know what I was entering. So I arrive at the Schwanger Correctional Facility which serious things happen there, but it is softer compared to most prisons, except but for the fact they sent me into B1, which was housing for all the most dangerous people in the state that they have to keep a close eye on. So when I arrived to prison, I didn't readily admit what I was in prison for. When guys asked me, I just blew it off, uh, robbery, murder, this, that, and the other thing. And I just started to go with the flow. When guys started to catch wind of what I was in jail for, then problems started to happen. So I'm in a fight or a death situation. What am I going to do? There was pressure. I politicked mostly. I tried to avoid violence whenever I could. And eventually I got you know the attention of certain guys. They saw my paperwork and they, they gave me a shot. And so I started helping other guys out. And in prison, it's, it's you know, there's bloods, there's God bodies, which is the five percenters, there's Muslims. There's a, the Italians, Latin kings. There's, there's all different sorts of sects. So I found my way in with everybody, and I showed my paperwork, and guys started sticking up for me. And plus, I, I'm a big guy, so guys didn't want to just straight out say, you know, I had to pay money or this, that, and the other thing, as opposed to my co-defendant, who was recently cut two weeks ago. I mean, they cut him in the face. The guards is pressing up on him. They're waving the newspaper around. He lost a recent appeal, and they're telling all the inmates, you know, what he's in jail for. I was, I was able to politic my way through it. Was it always a joy? No. I had trouble, and, and there were certain places where the guards were worse than the inmates. Because you were transferred around to different places? Or? Yeah, and certain guards have more morals and ethics that they think it's their ethical duty to see to it that, that we do hard time. Right. And so, obviously, it is the hardest imaginable type of time because in this country we don't focus on rehabilitation as other Western countries do. We focus on punishment, which I think is backwards too, except in, the, in maybe the most extreme cases we could have a we could have an intelligent discussion about that. But And in fact, yours was an extreme case, except you were innocent. But that being said, I don't believe that sentencing somebody to 25 years to life in prison, okay, we can say maybe that's an appropriate sentence. Maybe it should be longer. Maybe it should be shorter. But sentencing them to be tortured, that's not what we do in America. That's not appropriate. And the fact is that the way we treat people in our 
prison system effectively is torture. And I want to talk about Privac because his story deserves to be heard and people need to get involved. Maybe they could write to him if you tell people if he's interested in having yeah, people write to him. Yeah, I always should. advocate for people to write to him. From time to time, I, I put his address on the internet. I, I send him pictures. I try to visit him when I can. It breaks my heart to see him. I bring him in high spirits. He's got a great team. Professor Adele Bernard, Jeffrey Deskovic is behind him. So he's got the support of our community, the Innocence community, and we want to see him out. We got his case in, into the appellate division now, and we're waiting for a decision whether he can leave to appeal because I was acquitted. So based on the same proof, which consists of some new proof, he should be entitled to the same shot that I was recently given. It's so strange, right? So you've been acquitted. The actual perpetrator has been identified, arrested, convicted, right? right? right. So what possible reason could they have to hold? And I don't know as much about his case as I do about yours. Right. Well, it's the same. It's, it's pretty much the same, except he's got a confession. I do not. A false confession. I do not. It's the political climate in the community. A, they place their own interest above the interest of justice. So if something happens, if their colleague does something wrong, they cover up for it. B, they're worried about paying uh, compensation. The county was already sued by Jeff. They're being sued by other people right now, two other cases. So the local government wants to keep this swept under the rug for as long as possible for however means they can. So we're moving forward. And if they don't want to accept it, if the Putnam DA's office don't want to accept it, Andy's actually innocent, notwithstanding my induction into the National Registry of Exonerees, notwithstanding the fact that the wrongful conviction community accepts me as being actually innocent, we're just going to fight them tooth and nail. And if they have to roll over and we just have to just keep on marching through, that's what's going to happen. Because I'm not going to tolerate these people. All they want to do is protect their own interests. This isn't just. They should accept responsibility. They have their killer. They, they have, have their, their guy. Killer. They know who it is. There's DNA proof. There's a confession. So what There's is the possible theory now, Anthony? Are they thinking now, well, maybe he had something to do with it also? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Does it, this one is exactly a match. I mean, you don't have to be a skilled right. sleuth or detective or Kojak or whatever to figure this one out, right? I mean, everything that you said leading up to this point about how all the other crimes matched and the DNA and everything. It's like, obviously, it was this sick bastard Gombert, right? Who, Howard who, Gombert, yes. who did it? And so the fact that your your co-defendant is still rotting and and being you know horribly abused and cut and everything else in prison, it, it should keep everybody up at night until this guy is free. It doesn't make any logical it's, sense. And I agree with you. And I just want to build a little bit more. We extended the olive branch to the district attorney's office. The prior district attorney, Adam Levy, he actually contacted the attorney general's office to reinvestigate our case and was prepared to vacate my judgment in paperwork that he and my attorneys had drafted together with the attorney general involved based on proof that this guy Castallo coerced perjured testimony and based on proof that Howard Gombert is the actual perpetrator. But he lost the election to this new guy, Bob Tendy, who is in bed with the Putnam County Sheriff that's the elected official down there now. So... Instead of continuing to accept this olive branch, we could work together. We could solve the crime. You could be heroes by being accountable and responsible. And we're not going to, forgive my language, shit on you when you let us out. We're going to big you up and we're going to try and help you look good And as, as long as you do the right thing for us. He said to the attorney general, you could kick rocks. I don't need you, another advocate for the defendant. And then proceeded to go through the trial. Now, at this point, I made bail. I made a million dollars bail. 
So I'm free, but I'm on house arrest. I had an ankle bracelet and I'm sitting there and I'm still waiting to find out if this guy really wants to take a trial or not. And he's, he's, he's all in. So he hires this guy, Larry Glasser, who worked on the Plaxico Burris case, the football star. Yeah. I'm not going to comment on what I think of him. So he comes in, he's all balls to the wall, hating us and saying all the foulest things about us and that we definitely did it and there's no possibility we're innocent and proceeds to go to trial. Now I go through the third trial. This is the third time. I got two reversals. The first time was the conflict interest from the attorney in 2011. 2016, the Court of Appeals granted me a new trial based on proof that Howard Gombert did it, was suppressed from the, the retrial judge. So I'm going to trial and we pick a jury and, and they're being horrible about it. And at the same time, we did all from the olive branch. We go into the trial. At the end of the trial, the closing of the trial, I had I Mark Ignifolo, who works for Ben Brockman and Associates, and Mark Baker, who also works for Ben Brockman. He did appeal for John Gotti. Great attorneys, superior attorneys. They got the best hearts. They came this summer, the whole summer they were spending at my house. We were working on a case. We did everything. So I'm waiting for the jury verdict. Now it's five hours. I'm waiting for the jury verdict. And I think, man, I'm not going to win this because I was beaten down my whole life. You know, I was a victim my whole life. So I just think that this is another motion that I have to do, go back to prison and come back, try and get it back a fourth time. The jury comes out with a not guilty verdict. So I'm having a heart attack. Jeffrey Deskovic is in tears, gives me a big hug. I'm sitting in my heart's pounding. The lawyers are in tears. My family's in tears. I knew the moment that that was going to happen. The judge looked when he said he was about to read the verdict. He looked towards the victim's family. And, and again, I have great sympathy for them. And he said, there'll be no outburst in this court. And this is before the jury guy stood up. And this was like two, three seconds before. I said, when he looked over there and didn't look at us, I knew I was coming home. And I came home and it was the greatest day of my life. I mean, I was, I lost bail during the period of time. I went back to the jail for whatever reason. But that day, that was the day that I, uh, that I made it home. And I was finally free of this. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. 
I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. You're finally free. It's bittersweet because you know as well as anybody that this this poor guy, Andrew Kreebeck, is as innocent as you are. And I know you're not going to really, because I know the type of person that you are, you're not really going to be able to experience the joy that you deserve until he's home as well. But what was that like after you spent more than half your life in prison, right? 18 years old when you went in. Right. 38, 39 when you came out? I was 40. 40, yeah, right. 20 years. Right, because with the trial proceedings and everything else, by the time you actually went to prison, you were 20. Right. Right, arrested when you were 18. You spent more than half your life in the system, and you come out, and what is that like? You walk out, what does fresh air smell like when you haven't had any? What does freedom feel like? Where do you go? What was your first instinct? Did you want a milkshake? What did you do? Well, you know, I mean, I wanted what everybody else wanted, but I really wanted to spend time with my family. There was a lot of shock because prison is drab. Your bland colors and just everything. Like I went to I went to bed and bath and I just looked at the wall of toothpaste. In commissary, you got three choices of toothpaste. So I'm looking at the toothpaste on a wall, like, what am I doing? How am I supposed to make choices? And so even just going to a gas station and being able to buy a soda or seeing females walk around. Like in prison, you're around men. I mean, they got some women guards, but being able to to talk to girls, to speak to the opposite sex, to be able to not be wearing state greens, not being barked at orders, you know. But the first, the first most important thing that I found coming home was just being able to be with my family and appreciate the love and respect that they show me and give back and have a good time, have a good meal. We went to Red Lobster. What'd you have? I had the ultimate feast. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted everything. Yeah. And I've been having the ultimate feast since I've been home. I'm on a diet now, no carbs at all, so... No more bread. I went from 240 to 275 in like six months. Well, and I want to go back to that because when we were together and uh, we were hanging out in Miami recently, coincidentally, we ended up in the same city. We were having some dinner and we're talking. And among all the other horrible things about being in prison, and I know you were just talking about the food, and I know you don't get a vegetable, you don't get a fruit, you get basically slop in there, it right? Is, it really is. I mean, bland, just terrible food. Some of it's rotten. I mean, we know all those stories. But the other thing that's unique to your case and makes me really amazed that you're walking around upright is the idea that you're so big and the beds are too small. And oh, yeah. My, there's no bed that my feet didn't hang off on or I had to crunch up somehow. I mean, it's the, I can't. I, don't I had know. back problems until the day I came home. When I came home, my back problems went straight away. Isn't that amazing? I had disc up and down my back. And now I haven't had a, one disc pain, one sharp pain since I've been home. And I've been working out. And in prison, you live on a mat. Like, it's one inch thick. And it's like you're living on a, a piece of steel. And like you said, sometimes the walls don't fit a guy six six. They fit a guy maybe six feet. So you have to crunch up and you have to, you know, find your way. I slept half the time. Yeah, I mean, because you got to just wake up with cramps in places that you don't even know you have places. I, I can't even imagine. On top, I said, you know, as I talk about, I mean, on top of the 
the loneliness, the violence, the lack of appropriate physical contact, all of it, it just adds up to just such a total nightmare. But I want to go back to prison for a second. Was there a worst time and was there anything positive? Was there one moment that you could think back? Was there a connection you made with somebody on the inside? Was there some moment of hope? Was well, I mean, there was brotherhood. When I was in Attica, we were living good. We were cooking. We had pans. Everybody had TVs. There was a camaraderie in, in the cell block where there was no problem. Everybody knew who I was and everybody respected me. And there was a brotherhood between us. But there was times where prison guards would come to my cell because they heard out about Anthony DePippo's in their jail. And they decided to break all my things and threaten me with that. And so I experienced that in certain prisons like Sullivan. It's a tough prison when you have the guards going against you because they are the biggest gang in the prison. When you have the guards going against you, you can't win. So you have to walk on eggshells because anything you do, if you decide one day I'm going to fight the guards because I don't like the pressure that they're putting on me, you're going to get more time. They're going to send you to prison inside of prison. You're going to go to the box and then you're going to get one to three or seven more years. So I'm thinking to myself and to these times that I was pressured that my family loves me. They invested $3 million dollars. Since I've been incarcerated, $3 million into my criminal defense. Wow. I would not be respectful if I got caught up in some other thing where they get me off, or I want to say the word off, they prove that I'm actually innocent for this crime. And I do something else stupid that I can't come home. So at certain times, I stayed in my cell. I bit my fist and I just said, I'm going to eat this. And luckily, I didn't come across any situation where I had to do more time. But there were times that I wanted to come out of my cell and hurt something. I just made sure those days were the days that I want to lock in because I love my family. I love myself. I want to go home. Is there a moment when you think back where you experienced any type of positive thing? I mean, I know there were there certain There was a things. lot of ups in prison. You become bipolar. So you would have severe depression, which even if you're not bipolar as a person, you will experience some sort of it. So There'll be great downs when you lose your appeals, and I appealed more than 20 times. When you lose your appeals and you have to go to the next step, but then there's great hope. If you know you're innocent and you're getting closer, you get this high, this euphoric high, like I'm right there. And then when you win, even if you're still in prison, when you just win leave to appeal, you don't even got the right to appeal, that brings you up. When certain people write you, like ex-girlfriends or loved ones, the girls want to come see you and, and, and you've been down for so long... There's ups in prison. You live in life. So you just can't walk around for 20 years saying, this is an awful experience. I'm going to hate myself. I'm going to hate everything in it. You got to try to make the most of what you got. And that's what I did. That's a very spiritual approach, very evolved. And really, I think for those of us who hear you speak, it's absolutely remarkable. And I think that the exonerees as a whole embody that attitude. And I, I've heard some of the guys say and women say that, for the people who weren't able to get to that spiritual place, if you want to call it that, they're still stuck in there because they sort of gave up hope. And for you, you kept fighting. In a certain sense, you were lucky. I mean, you can't call yourself lucky, but it was I fortunate. For mine. I had family with money, and then I, I also put in the work. So I was in the trenches with them the whole way. When you came out, I almost want to trace those steps. You come out, you're euphoric. You go into a car with your family. Everyone's ecstatic, so happy to have you back. Because it's a burden on the family, too. When someone's wrongfully convicted, it drags everybody down. Anybody who loves you, of course, right? So then you drive away. 
Where'd you go first? You went home first? I really didn't have an idea what we wanted to do. So Jeff was there. And so I wanted to go eat. Nobody knew where we wanted to go eat. There was about 20 of us that were there that day. Some people didn't even think there was going to be a verdict that day and went home. One of my attorneys almost crashed on the side of the road. So they said, you know, what do you want to do? So Jeff's like, let's go to Red Lobster. I have waited to go to Red Lobster for so long. So I just went on his suggestion and it was great. We went over there. We had drinks. And then while I was there, this was one of the remarkable things was one of the guards that was taking me to trial during the first trial in 97 was there. He's not a guard anymore. A guy named Officer San Sanjuria. He came up to me. And he's like, I want to, you know, just congratulate you. I didn't know who he was. And this is, I'm just out a hot hour and a half. And he's shaking my hand. So I'm like, thank you. Oh, you don't remember me? Yeah, no, I was taking you to the trial back then. I thought something was wrong back then. Let me buy you a beer. So one of the guards, one of the jailers that was taking me to my original trial, who felt something was off, gave me a big tall blue moon with the little orange in it. And I banged that back. And it was just an experience, man. I'm, I'm very thankful for him. I'm trying to imagine how good lobster tastes after 20 years of terrible food. How good does beer taste after 20 years of no beer? So, Anthony, there's a rather bizarre aspect of your post-exoneration life that really just boggles my mind. In spite of all the other things you've been through, which are so terrible, now there's another indignity that the state is throwing at you. And you basically, you can't get a driver's license. Is that right? Right. So I go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and they tell me, you got outstanding tickets. So I went to the town courthouse to go pay the tickets off. So they're telling me these tickets amount to 10 points on my license. These are tickets from 95. I failed the signal, I was speeding, and, and you know, I'm not debating whether I did these things or not. You know, I was a, a dumb thinker as a youth. But at this point now, I come home 20 years, you figure it'll be resolved. And so now they're telling me that I may have another additional year of suspended license. That's like, all right, you were wrongfully convicted for 20 years, but here, matter of fact, on top of that, I have an additional year without a license to extend your sentence or whatever. I mean, it's crazy. There's the statute of limitations on almost all crimes except murder. I think rape right. is 10 years. I don't think traffic violations got statute of limitations. It's That's unbelievable, funny. right? Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, you're coming out and you're going, wait, but I've been locked up for 20 days. They're like, That's all right. It's like saying to you, you know, I don't care if the door's locked, you're still late, right? right? I mean, like, what are you talking about? It's just, I mean, at a certain point, the bureaucracy should grow a heart. And say, okay, you know what? We're going to make us a little exception here for this right. guy. Okay. So, but that's not the case. So, it must you know, be an unbelievable feeling. It's a lot of culture shock. So, I'm eating, I'm enjoying my life. At the same time, when I look back on it, I feel guilty because there's so many people that deserve that, that are still behind bars, that haven't made it home. At the same time, I feel happy and I enjoy the things that I'm enjoying now. And I still got a lot more to go because I'm still trying to reintegrate myself. I always look back and I say, if I could just help one person, one person achieve their freedom that don't deserve to be in prison. In the back of my mind, I'm always thinking about people. And I'm sure you get it too. You know, everybody needs help. And I wish, wish I could help everybody. I just wish anybody that could be reached, I could reach. You know, it's, it's impractical to think that you can do that. But if you can help one person or two people, I think that benefits society as a whole. And that's an incredible message. And certainly I try to spend my days trying to figure out exactly that, right? How can I get one more Anthony DePippo out? Because it's just an incredible, incredible feeling to see that transformation, to see 
justice served after all these years to see somebody like you get their life back on track. You know, I call it selfish altruism. I do it because it makes me feel good. Well, you and got I... a great passion for it. And, you know, it's very admirable. The point you are in your career, you don't need to be doing this, but it's something that you do out of love and respect and trying to give back and find a solution to a problem is very admirable. I, I think I, your dad was involved in this, right? With the Innocence Project? Well, my dad was a supporter of the Innocence Project. And my mm. dad, who was my hero, he still is, he really instilled in my brother and I a sense of right and wrong and an idea that what you do to make the world a better place defines you as a person, not what you accomplish. He told us, do whatever you want to do. Try to be the best at it, but just make the world a better place. He goes, that's the meaning of success. And I wanted to be a success in his eyes because I looked up to him so much. I definitely credit him for giving me this passion. And he was, his firm actually, Scadden, is a huge supporter of the Innocence Project, donates thousands of pro bono hours, has been involved in some very important exonerations. And they're all important, but I mean some that have actually driven change systemically. And so it's really full circle to be able to work in this field, especially with his spirit hanging over and, and guiding. It's, 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 it, you know, and it's funny, you said I don't need to be doing it. I do need to be doing it. I mean, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I'm here for. And I'm very lucky in a lot of ways, but I'm very lucky to be in a position to be able to help certain people. And I want to help as many as I can. And to get back to that, I know a lot of people that are listening to you speak right now are saying the same thing. They're saying, how can I help? What can I do? And let's let's start with the case of Andrew Krivak. I mean, what can people do? All right, so anybody wishing to contact Andrew Krivak may do so. Andrew Krivak, please do write to him. I know he'd love to hear from you. And it's number 97A4236, Wendy Correctional Facility. That's W-E-N-D-E, 3040 Wendy Road in Alden, New York, 14004-1187. And we'll put this address on the uh, website for a wrongful conviction podcast. So what could people do to help Andrew Krivak? Just offer your support and become aware. And I'll help raise awareness. And then when his case comes up and the opposite side or the adversaries start making comments, then try to make comments back. We have attorneys for him. He's being represented pro bono by Adele Bernard and Victor Sipos. So he's got a great team. Jeffrey Deskovic, of course, we're behind him. Offer moral support, anything you could do. I, I think that will help us get us over the hump. Right now, the DA is being stubborn. Again, they're placing their own interest above the interest of justice. The interest of justice for not only Andrew Krivak and myself, but for the victims in this matter, uh, Josette Wright and the other girl, Robin Murphy, who Howard Gombert also, in my view, killed, based on what I told you earlier. There are ways you can help the actually innocent. And anyway, I mean, some, you know, there's some places you can donate, like to the Innocence Project, to the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation, but some people don't have the money to donate. And when you don't have the money to donate, you can always offer moral support and always stand in somebody's corner. And you can go to the websites, go to the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation and learn about their work. Go to innocenceproject.org. There's some instructions there of things you can do to get involved. Before we close, Anthony, I always like to ask, is there anything else that you want to share with the audience from your experience? Well, I'm trying to do my best to try to help people and trying to give back to the criminal justice system, to the wrongful conviction community. I'm currently working with the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation, analyzing cases 
I'm trying to determine who we could help, who's reachable. There's a lot of innocent people in there, but I'm trying to determine who's reachable. At the same time, I'm going around and I encourage people to try to do the same thing. I'm going around, I'm lobbying lawmakers. I'm with It Can Happen to You. Professor Bennett Gershman, I'm, you may have heard of him. We're trying to pass a piece of legislation creating the Commission on Prosecutorial Conduct, which would be an additional grievance committee for prosecutors who commit misconduct as a form of deterrence. So prosecutors won't withhold evidence if they know that there's going to be a penalty aside from the grievance committee, or they won't knowingly use perjured testimony. They try to create some balance. You know, there's a, the system works on checks and balances. And so, you know, I'm out there, I'm trying to lobby, I'm trying to work. If you can help anyway with the wrongful conviction movement, whether it's donate, moral support, anything, it's greatly appreciated. And there's other people that are in prison that deserve to come home. If I could give my life to bring 10 people home, I probably would do it. The guy said, just let, just give me one more day. I'll go do have some fun. And then you could come for my soul and let 10 other free people out that didn't deserve to be in prison. I would probably do that. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.